You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Join me now, as is our custom, open the Bible with me. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. Now, if you don't have a Bible or a smartphone or an app that will get you there, uh, do me a favor. There's a paper version of the Bible in the tray of the chair in front of you. Uh, In fact, if you don't have a Bible, make that our gift to you. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. We believe that the Bible is a treasure, even as Jesus teaches, uh, a, a trove of treasure that if this is the first time you've ever opened a Bible, or if this is the thousandth, thousandth time you've opened the Bible, there's treasure equal for both of us. And so, so join us. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 2. I'll give you a little bit of a rundown of what we'll find there and, and why we are there on this Christmas Eve. Uh, what I think we'll find in the, and I'll, I'll give it a heads up here, as we read the second chapter, we're going to read from verse 5 all the way to verse 18 at the end of the chapter. And verse 14 and 15 uh, are, in my opinion, uh, one of the greatest summary statements for what we celebrate in the season of Advent and Christmas. Now, that word Advent, as, as we've said, it's just kind of a fancy word for, for coming or arrival. And so we believe that Jesus wasn't merely or simply born on Christmas Day, although we certainly believe that. But it was more than that. It, it, was, that, it was that the God of the universe came. The God of the universe has arrived. The God of the universe is not up there and out there such that we would speculate or, or even worse, like the religions of the world, try to build up our way and build a ladder to get to Him. We celebrate and commemorate in this season that the God of the universe came to be like us, with us, in even the most meek and humble possible way. And so, the book of Hebrews, if I were to summarize in general, as we find ourselves kind of in the context of chapter 2, is a story, uh, or, or better even as historians might say, it's, it's a sermon. Now, we don't know who wrote it, uh, but we know that it, it, early, early on in Christian history, it became circulated as a powerful understanding for how to read the Old Testament. You'll see many Old Testament references that we'll read along the way. Uh, but in the first couple of chapters, he makes one of many cases that Jesus is amazing. Jesus is a supreme. Jesus is supremely better than. And then over the course of the, the story of Hebrews, and this we say sermon as it were, because uh, it, it seems to be the length and, and, and it seems to be written for, uh, it seems to be written in a way that's poetic as if to be spoken and, and to be uh, written in such a way that's like powerful rhetoric, as you'll see as we read through it. But in the first couple of chapters, it starts by saying that Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is is the creator, the God of the universe. He is supreme. And you can skim over the first chapter even today or in the days to come to see how great and majestic Jesus is. But then in the second chapter, he he concludes or or wraps up this section that Jesus is better than the angels. It's in the long list of things that Jesus is the true and better than in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than a high priest. That is, Jesus is now our perfect high priest who intercedes for us forever. Uh, Jesus is the true and better temple. That is, we come into the presence of God perfectly and completely forever And Jesus. It goes on and on and on. And, and in the very beginning, as if to maybe correct some, some uh, false beliefs that were circulating in the early church, that, that Jesus was just an angel. Jesus was just the archangel Michael, or Jesus was just Gabriel, or, or Jesus was some sort of angelic manifestation. We find that, uh, uh, as, as like a good preacher I hope would do, makes a case and a compelling uh, persuasive argument. No, Jesus is better than an angel. Jesus is better than anything like that. So, as great and majestic as Jesus is, you start reading through Hebrews chapter 1 and see how high and majestic and powerful he is. Chapter 2 says that even though he was high and powerful, what we celebrate in the season of Advent is that in his height and power and majesty, he came low more so, lower than any other angel you could imagine. So begin in verse 5 with me of chapter 2. We'll read to the end of the chapter. We'll spend most of our time thinking through verses 14 and 15. So I want you, I want you to hear it. I want you to hear Advent and Christmas. As you, as you wonder, like what, what, are we, what is it that this whole Christmas thing is about? You'll see it in verse 14 and 15. Beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. 
Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you of your name, I will, t- excuse me, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In the season of Advent, we celebrate and observe, as the Christian church has done for the last 2,000 years, a fancy word to describe the great mystery of Christmas. Whenever there's a mysterious thing going on and it's beyond our imagination, typically Christians have come along and had to build a word. And that word, I don't care if you remember it or use it ever again, but it's important here, is incarnation. Literally, to take upon flesh. And so we are celebrating the coming of God to take upon flesh, to be born in our likeness. And as we think about Christmas, Advent, what we're commemorating even here today, I think this text gives us some really powerful observations for us to make. First and foremost, Jesus is the ruler of something. So he begins in verse 5, this this powerful communicator, in expounding upon the, the history of redemption in the Old Testament, he says that as I, as I said earlier, to show that Jesus is not just some other angel, nor did he just come to be like or help other angels. Jesus was a human in order to help and be like, even in the lowest of lows, other humans. And so you get this picture from the Psalms. This is a quote from the Psalms uh, uh, in, in verse 6, 7, and 8. It's Psalm 8. And it's a, a reflection upon the creation of all things. That God has made human beings, and even though they're frail and weak, mortal, they're easy to kill, they don't live very long in the grand scheme of things, they come and go, they're like grass, they are still bestowed with love and honor and glory. Here you see that phrase at the end of verse 7, they, they've been crowned, you hear that, this, this vision of royalty, that human beings bearing the image of God, have some royal crown of glory and honor. But we also find that, starting in verse 8, as he's going to do for the rest of the entirety of the book of Hebrews, even though it's sort of about human beings, he's helping us uh, interpret the Bible to understand, no, this is really about Jesus. Psalm 8 isn't really only about human beings, because after all, the first humans in creation failed, failed to live in subjection to God and to out of good and right stewardship, subject things under his goodness and glory. In fact, the first humans rejected God's rule altogether. They they rebelled against God. So ultimately, we find that the, the second Adam, as it were, Jesus is the one who fully fulfills the prophecy of Psalm chapter 8. So he switches from talking about humans to now talking about the human, Jesus. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. So he's saying, Jesus 
as ruler of something. Whoever this Jesus is, everything is under him, he has subject, or everything is under his control. Nothing is outside of his control. Everything is under his subjection. Now, I know the first thing you'll say is, time out, you're saying all this chaos and all this nonsense in the world is actually under God's control? Yes. But that's really difficult, if not at sometimes impossible to see. And the writer of Hebrews is that what I, what I could commend to you, especially maybe if you're in this room, you're not a, a believer in Jesus, maybe to wondering or not sure what, what this whole Christianity thing is about. There's some really great summaries here in this text, but here's at least one of them. The Bible is incredibly honest and very nuanced about the way things really are. Because on one hand, we might say that, yes, Jesus is Lord over all things. Everything's under his control, but listen what it admits at the other half of Verse 8, at present, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I, I, love, I love how frank and honest that is. Like, you look at your life and mine, you, you just see the world around you, and you're like, I know, it, it's as if he's saying, I know, it doesn't look like it. Right? As if to already anticipate your objection in mind. Like, wait a minute, you're saying, you're saying Jesus is ruler of all things and he's going to fix everything? I don't see that. And the book of Hebrews goes like, yeah, that's absolutely true. I know at present we don't see that. But what do we see? Verse 9, but we see him. Right? I know, I know we don't see everything as it ought to be, but what we do see is him. As if to say, like, I know things aren't what they ought to be, but when you look at him, you begin to see what they ought to be. After all, as he says here, this is a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 8. Humanity is perfectly fulfilled. A, a great human, the human one, is Jesus. And so he kind of describes what it is that we commemorate at Advent. We see him. What is Advent? It's the one who for a little while was made lower than the angels. The one, God. This one who, who everything's under his subjection. He lowered himself into the, everything under his subjection. Namely, Jesus who is, and here's the paradox, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So he has a crown of glory and honor as the human one, the one who evidently is ruler of something, and that's what we commemorate in Advent. Here's the second thing we commemorate in Advent, celebrate in Christmas. Jesus is the inventor and founder of something. If Jesus is the ruler and king over something, he's also the founder of something. He has started something. That, that language you see here in verse 10, that that is translated founder, quite literally it means beginner. Now, but that's not a helpful translation because typically when you and I think of a beginner, we think of someone who just started something and is not very good, is kind of building some experience and know-how, right? But literally, Jesus is the beginner of salvation who is made perfect through suffering. So a, a, little, a little foreshadowing to what we'll talk about in just a moment. You saw there, he is the ruler but his glory is paradoxical. It's the glory of death. And he's the beginner of something that is perfected through what? Suffering. That's the second kind of paradox you see. Jesus is the inventor. He's the founder of something. He has started something. That, that, that word founder is where we get that same word in John chapter 1 that literally says, in the beginning. This is the beginning one. And what he has done, he has gone first. He is the leader, as it were. He is the uh, he is the, some translations, I love to say, he's the pioneer, right? He's the first one who's ever gone. This redemptive purpose that God has in humanity, Jesus is the first one. He's the, he's the one, who, who, right, he's, he's the one who, who leads us up the hill or leads the charge, breaks through the barrier. He does it as the leader for those that follow him. For he, after all, what does he do with his leadership and his founding and his beginning? He brings many sons and daughters to glory draws them to the Father, draws them back to what was originally intend for them, intended for them, and makes them holy, quite literally, verse, seven, or verse 11 there, sanctifies those who are sanctified, all having one. So he who sanctifies, that's, that's the God who is, although he has everything under subjection, submitted himself to that subjection, he's the one who sanctifies, and then he sanctifies others. So he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Quite literally, just all are one. So, see the paradox again. 
He's a ruler of something, but he's also the inventor of something by uniting himself, becoming one with the people who need help. Last thing I think you see in this passage, Jesus is the brother of someone. He's the, he's the ruler, he's the, right, he's the ruler of something, he's the inventor and the founder of something, and he's the brother of someone. Notice the language of family. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why, like, right, why, why would the one who sanctifies or makes holy or makes pure and the dirty people who need to be made pure, why would they be one? Those things you would think are separate. Why would he be made one? In order that, he would call them brother. In order that, the one who sanctifies and the people who need it would be called brother and sister. And then again, he quotes the Old Testament. This is a, if, you, if you like nerding out on the Old Testament, this is, this is a phenomenal place for you to go. Uh, the very first quotation is from Psalm 22. This is the psalm that Jesus proclaimed from the cross. It begins, it's a two-part messianic prophecy. It starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, uh, starting in verse 22, this psalm turns as a picture of the, the Messiah that would come through suffering, who would experience the very forsakenness of God. The psalm turns in verse 22, and this is the quote. It's about suffering, but then the second half is about the future exaltation. And in that future exaltation, he will do what? He will testify of his victory through suffering to his brothers, to the congregation. He will praise God and he will tell of God's goodness to whom? His brothers. And again, and now there are two quotations, both from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17 and verse 18. I will put my trust in him, and then behold, I and the children God has given me. This is a particular time in history when the people of God are about to be demolished by Syria because of their sin. And yet they're called by this prophetic vision in Isaiah chapter 8 to hope in God through suffering. Don't be afraid. I'm going to bring you through the suffering. And Isaiah responds, I will hope in you. I see the suffering coming, but even though I see the suffering coming, I will trust that you will do just that, that you will lead us through it. And then the second part, he says, I and the children of God. Uh, at, at this particular verse, Isaiah is simply symbolically saying that I and my children, literally his sons, I and my children are going to trust you. I and my children are going to be united together in hoping that you are going to deliver us through suffering. I and my sons in this case, symbolizing the children that God has been entrusted to the fulfiller of this particular thing. I have a shared hope through suffering with these children that God has given to him. And notice, each of these quotations evidently are all about Jesus. That ultimately, Jesus, because he is the brother of someone, will, as he endures suffering and is victorious, celebrate with his brothers and sisters. He will also trust in the Lord and in his deliverance through his suffering, he will, again, somehow behold, well, I love this, behold, I and the children that God has given, he will, he will somehow possess and protect and keep his brothers and his sisters. Jesus says the same things about us. He says to you and to me, we have a shared hope. And that shared hope is through suffering. And through that suffering, these children, who will be made children, are united to and one with Jesus himself. Now, now we get to Christmas. Now we get to what we celebrate uh, today and tomorrow. Since therefore the children, what children? right? The children that he has now drawn to himself by enduring suffering. Since the children share in flesh and blood, right? This is prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah saying, I'm going to trust in God with my children. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going to keep these children of yours, Father. And since their flesh and blood, I love the emphatic phrase here, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's Advent. That's Christmas. It's poetic, it's powerful, it's a bit wordy, 
but I, I, you should do that. Today, you should say, Mary, he himself likewise partook of the same things. It is, he himself likewise partook of the same things, Eve. He, that is God, himself likewise. I mean, just listen to the emphatic words there, right? Like, he could have just said he partook of the same things. That's, that's one word there. Like, and that's, that's a way to identify, right? If I just said, hey, we're sharing the same things. But then it stacks three, to, uh, three high. He's like, he, he who? He himself, right? In case you were you're like, which he? The him, he himself. He himself did what? He himself likewise. What do you mean? Like he partook of the same, partook of the same things of the children of God? Yeah, he did so just like just like you, just like me. He himself likewise. He took part in the same things. We celebrate and commemorate today and tomorrow that God is not up there and out there, but now God has come to be with us and like us. So here's some powerful truths in the middle of this. This is going to be wordy. But I want to drive the point. You could put this parenthetical comment anywhere in this sentence. Jesus is the king. What king? The king who cares for and identifies with the suffering and the dying. Jesus is the king, right? Who he himself likewise partook in the same things, cares for and identifies with the suffering and the dying. He, like, he himself likewise partook in suffering. He himself likewise partook in death. Christmas, we celebrate, he himself likewise partook in birth. He himself likewise took part in what we celebrate in the Christmas story, rejection. Being in need. Being desperate. In order that you would know something about this king. Because after all, you might be asking, why would I subject myself to this king? Why? 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 Okay, okay, let's say, right, let's say I, I, I grant you Jesus is a king, fine. I'm spiritual, majestic king, fine. Why would I submit to him? Why would I subject myself to him? You see what people with power do. And we find here the book of Hebrews tells us you can trust this king because he's not like any other king. He's the king who he himself likewise partook in the suffering and even the death of his people. His kingdom is upside down. His kingdom is not like any other kingdom. It's not a kingdom where he sends his subject out to die for him. It's a kingdom in which this king jumps in front of all of his subjects and dies so that they will not. Remember the paradox of glory that we saw in the very first section. There's a glory and honor. Psalm chapter 8 and verse 7. And yet the glory and honor we find in verse 9 is the glory and honor that he's crowned with, and then that phrase, because of suffering and death. <laughs> what? None of us think of glory that way, right? <laughs> None of us think of glory, like, oh, that was a glory. Was... If, I, if I said to you, like, I had a glorious day, right? None of you think of a day full of suffering and dying. And that's the paradox of this king. That's why you can trust him. He's not like any other king. Think about what this teaches us about the God of the universe. This king cares about the physical and the real. He cares about the nitty gritty. He came to be like us so that we would look and realize we have a king who doesn't crush us, but a, a king who lifts us up. I mean, think about I'm not, I'm not going to be as tactful as I say this. I'm going to do my best. But think about what we celebrate in Christmas. The God of the universe was born. That is a beautiful and wonderful event. Birth. Hmm. As tactfully as I can suggest, that is not an overall completely clean or pleasant event. Certainly not something you would want to take place in a barn. Even further, again, as tactfully as I can suggest this, almost every single curse word 
and the English language is directly related to some human body part or human function. Now again, I don't want you to, I'm not leading anyone to sin here. I don't want you to reflect on that. I don't want you to practice that. And I certainly don't want you to say, Jonathan told me, no. But I just want you to think for a moment. The majority of vulgarities, the majority of curse words are some sort of derivative of human body parts or human functions. The majority of that which is vulgar is derived from human body parts and human functions. Hear the mystery of this. This king has come to take on vulgarity. This king has come to show that these things are not separate, they're not unknown. Human functions, human existence, and the human experience are not something that disgusts this king. The nittiest and grittiest of days for you and for me is a day that this king comes and says, I'm with you. I identify with you. And so maybe you say, Jesus is the inventor, he's the leader. Why would I follow him? Here's the second thing we think, I think we see here. Jesus is the leader who he himself likewise partook of the same things, who suffers for those who would follow him. He's the pioneer. He's the, right, he's, the, he's the first one through. He's the first accomplisher of this great salvation. And you might say, well, why would I follow him? Right? Why, why would I entrust him with my future? Well, why, why would I entrust my life to this Jesus that you keep talking about, that people are celebrating? Why, why would I trust him? And, and here's why. Because he isn't just a leader who runs off without his people. He is a leader who suffers for those who would follow him. He is a leader who says, come with me. By the way, I will take the greatest and most awful pain that you can imagine. I will redeem it. Now follow me. He's not like other leaders who would use you, get some benefit from you. He's the opposite. He leads the people who are no benefit to him. In fact, he leads them by being a benefit to them. He is the perfecter. Uh, later in the book of Hebrews, we'll say he's the author. He's the beginner, the starter of this whole thing. It was his idea. I, I love this. There, um, there are so many parts of the Christmas story that we, if we retell them honestly, they seem haphazard, or they even seem, as you read Matthew and Luke, uh, you think like, well, that wasn't supposed to happen, right? Like, um, you know, he wasn't welcome. Why not? I mean, that doesn't make sense. Um, you know, why, why, why wasn't he welcome? Or, or, or and the, I mean, think about it. He went to go visit family, right? That means that, like, he wasn't welcome, just not at the hotel, which, right, didn't exist. You know, we live in a place where we know what a guest bedroom is. That's not, that doesn't exist, right, in the first century. And so he comes and he's presumably, as most commentarians would say, wasn't welcome in his own family, or at least they were too full, or they got there late. We don't know. And then he wasn't even welcome in the inn, as it were. It wasn't welcome elsewhere. And so they had to make other arrangements. We don't know exactly where he was. We don't know. Uh, we derived that he was in some sort of a stable because they used a manger, a, a feeding trough. So you're like, well, I think I know where those come from, right? And all of those things might seem haphazard, like, oh, like, man, this, this story doesn't seem to be going right. Matthew even tells us that, that he is not welcome to the point that Herod finds out about this, this king that has come, is threatened by that, and, and issues an edict to slaughter all the children born, the little boys born in that area or that city at that particular time. And at no single point in this, think of this, at no single point in this was there an accident. At no single point were things out of control. He's the inventor of this salvific work. It was his idea. It was his idea so that he would suffer in such a way that you would look to him and find help. Lastly, I think we see the language of family here. Jesus is the brother, who he himself likewise partook of the same things, who is proud of us. Did you hear that language? This is why he did this. He came, right, in all of these unwelcome ways to found and begin a salvation such that he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's not ashamed to call them brothers. Um, I could be wrong here, uh, maybe presuming or imposing, maybe projecting a little bit. If any of you have a brother, specifically if you have an older brother, um, if you have an older brother, 
I, I, want, I don't want to burst your bubble. That older brother has not always been proud of you. Uh, and if you don't have an older brother, come talk to me or other people who are nodding right now. Like, mm, that's right, that's right. Right, I mean, I was a little brother. I was a t- that's why I have a chip on my shoulder. That's why I am. That's why I am the way I am. At least part of the reason why I am the way I am. The other stuff's my fault. But, but there's this like, hey, I want to hang out with my brother and be like my big brother and, you know, and, and hang out with my big brother and all his big brother friends, right? And you know what happens when punk little baby brother tries to hang out with big brother, right? Oh, that's terrible. Like, the kinds of, like, <laughs> older brother-sanctioned beatings that I, that I, uh, that I endured, right? <laughs> like, and, and there are moments where my brother, and he got, I earned this. Don't, don't feel sorry for me. If, you, if I was your punk little brother, you'd feel the same way. There's no, no shame here. But if you have an older brother, it's probably what I experienced. There, there were times where your older brother was ashamed of you, where your older sister was like, oh, you annoy me. Oh, right? Listen to the language of family that's built into this. Number one, the God and creator of the universe is our Father. He is our Father. What a profound mystery for us to celebrate. Just think about it this way. If God wanted subjects, right? If the creator of the universe just wanted loyal subjects, then he could have just made a big flash right a big spectacle and we would have all been like wow you know oh like he could have just scared us and we would have all been loyal subjects but notice the god of the universe the creator of the universe didn't want just loyal robotic subjects the creator of the universe wanted family the creator of the universe who he himself likewise partook of the same things came to make us sons and daughters And then we see the language of brother. The creator of the universe has come such that he who himself likewise partook of the same suffering and death, sorrow that you and I experienced, would not be ashamed of us. Can you just think of that for just a moment, right? Like, imagine little brother on his most punk day, on his most annoying day, and imagine the big brother saying, this is my little brother, I'm so proud of him. And now you begin to get a glimpse in the metaphor that, that we find here. That's how Jesus, having come to partake himself in the same things that you and I experience, looks at you and looks at me, wraps his arm around us and says, this is my brother, this is my sister. I'm not ashamed of him. I'm not ashamed of her. He's proud. Imagine, he delights in and is proud of his brother and sister. Why, 14 and 15, since he's done all these things, he's partaken of all these things himself, he is now able to destroy even death, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. He is the king who suffers. He is the leader who suffers. He is the brother who suffers so that he could be the king who cares for and identifies with his subjects, so that he could be the leader and author and founder of something he identifies with and the brother of the one brother and sister that he identifies with, so that he would accomplish something for us. He would endure that suffering and that death so that we would look at him and know that he is a trustworthy king and ruler. He is a trustworthy leader. We will follow. He is a trustworthy brother. Since, if I were to rephrase that, since we suffer and die, Jesus suffered and died so that we would be emancipated from, set free from the fear of suffering or dying. And then the other language that's used in that last half is greatly helped in our weakness. Even shorter, we suffer and die and need a Savior who suffers and dies. Did you hear that language at the very beginning? It says that Jesus came to do something that was perfected in or completed in suffering. Even though he was the one by whom all things exist, he was founding something that he's perfected through suffering. Now, that isn't to imply that Jesus was imperfect or incomplete. It's as as if to say, this is part of, and here's a way I might illustrate this. I've I've kind of borrowed a few different times, but like, think of like 
the job description of the Messiah. Right? Think of what are all the things that the Messiah ought to be and do, right? Right? What are his responsibilities? What are his qualifications? Like what what is what is it that the Messiah will be and do? Imagine that as a job description. And imagine to complete the job description, one of his responsibilities is to suffer for those he's come to save. In order that those who suffer would know that they have, and look in the last few verses of that passage, a faithful high priest who can make propitiation, that's sacrificial atonement, take our place for our sins, and then help us in our time of need. Maybe think of it this way. Imagine uh, that I was going to pick you up at your house and take you somewhere. Would part of my responsibility be to at some point meet you at your house? Wouldn't it be that I go to your house to give you a ride? Take the analogy a little bit further. Imagine your house is on fire. Imagine you were facing impending death. Wouldn't part of my job to help you be to go to your house and help you out? Take the analogy even further as we apply it here. Imagine you are dead. Dead, lifeless, helpless, and hopeless in your sin. Wouldn't part of the job description for someone who would help you not just to be to go to your house, not just to go into the inferno, but to go into very death itself. That's how perfect, that's how perfect what he has done is for us. That's how complete what he has done is for us. And why? So that no one, no one, no matter how hopeless and helpless, would miss it. Think of what Christmas is saying, right? If, if this is God coming to partake himself of the same things so that we would look and know, oh, I get it. Like he, he, right, I love, you love the cam- campaign that's floating around. He gets us, right? This is, this is it. This is the, I wish it said he himself partook of the same things. That would be really cool and biblical. But that's not really good marketing, and so geniuses are in charge of that, and I'm not, right? He gets us. He's partaken of the same things so that when you look at him, you go, oh, now I get it. Now I get what he's after. And look what Christmas is, right? If it weren't enough, we could look and say, I, I'm a sinner. I know I need, a, I need someone to help me. Here's one who has come to take my place, who is obedient and perfect in all the ways that I am not. If you're like, I'm weak, I feel rejected, you look at Jesus and his suffering and rejection. Oh, he knows what that's like. He's come to scoop me out of this. But here's even the more powerful metaphor of Christmas. Think of it this way. Jesus in order to partake of the same things so that all of us would know he came for us, was born. Jesus came to redeem born people. Are any of you in the room born people? Have any of you at some time been born? You get, you get it? Like The bar is so low at Christmas. as if to say, this one has come for everyone. This one has come for you. If you could think of an excuse like, well, I can't relate to that. Like, it's lowered the bar completely. Like, have you been born? Cool. Jesus is too. Have you been weak and needy? Jesus too. In order that we would look to him and find what we need. In order that we would see the goodness of our older brother. This older brother is not like any other older brother. And at Christmas, we celebrate that. A sermon I heard, uh, or I didn't hear it. I'm about to say what this is from. It's from the early 20th century. I did not hear it, uh, obviously. <laughs> it's, not, it's not. A sermon I read that was written in the early 20th century. I'm from the late 20th century. It, like, that, like you didn't know that. I remember reading it. It was a, an exposition of Luke 15. Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son, the lost son, the, the, the son who rebels against the father, right? The, the younger son looks, looks at the father and says, you're as good as dead to me. Give me your inheritance, right? Like you try that sometime. Go to your parent and say, hey, can we just like skip past the whole dying and funeral thing and you just give me my inheritance now, right? Try that. See how they feel. 
that's the way the younger son has treated the father. And then looks at the father and says, you're as good as dead to me. Just give me, what, give me what's coming to me. I'll do what I want. And, and it's not even though is that he took the inheritance and invested it and like, you know, multiplied the family business. No, he took it and went to the far country, went as far away as he could from the father and squandered it, wasted it on all sorts of things that dishonored and would absolutely disappoint the father. To the point where he's starving to death, he's in with the pigs. He's in the muck feeding the muck to the pigs, and it says he comes to his senses. And then he returns to the father, father sees him a long way off, runs to him. And, and this particular sermon illustrated that like, while that parable was ultimately told to rebuke and correct the religious and self-righteous, the gospel is different. That parable ends that the younger son returns, the prodigal, the wasteful one shows up at the house, and the father you know, celebrates, slaughters the fattened calf, has a great time, and the older brother, rather than being like, oh, I'm so glad you're here, is what? Ashamed of the little brother and refuses to party with him. Says, Father, I've been, I have never left, you've never thrown me a party, right? I'm, I, you know, and, and so the, the parable is a rebuke to the older brother for being self-righteous towards those that the father, who are, that are lost, he welcomes back. What's powerful there is that if that's not the gospel, not completely. The gospel is that the wandering and wayward and rebellious son or daughter who has wasted and defamed the father, rebelled and run from him in the muck, instead of the older brother shaming him, instead of the older brother being disappointed in him, this is the gospel. Our true older brother went into the far country went away from the Father to experience even his rejection, climbed into the starving muck of the pigs, scooped out the younger brother and sister, threw them on their shoulder, and carried them all the way back to the Father to feast with him forever. That's the good news. And at Advent, we celebrate that the God of the universe has come all the way to the far country so that born people would look to him and go, oh, this God isn't just out to make loyal subjects. This God is out to make family. So three things. One, receive Jesus. I've, I've said this, I think, probably each Christmas, but this is what I, like, what do you think you need to do tonight and tomorrow to celebrate Christmas, right? Just start thinking, like, what, what do you need to do for, for Christmas to go as you've planned it, right? <laughs> what are the things you need to get done? What are the things you need to do? Right? Probably many of you like, somehow navigate the weather. That's about it. I don't know. That's on the list of things to do, right? But what are the things, like, in your mind, you're like, I need to do this. This is, this is part of celebrating Christmas this year. What are the things you need to do? What if I told you the only thing you need to do this Christmas is receive the one who was sent? What if you committed for the next, right, I don't know. I don't know what Christmas is for you. Like I know, if you're like my family, we, we open presents not on Christmas. We kind of celebrate it whenever we see each other, right? I don't know when that is for you, but what if the only thing that was really necessary for you to celebrate Christmas is to receive the one who was sent, the King, who suffered with his subject for them, the leader who suffered for his followers, the brother who suffered for his younger brother and sister. Number one, receive Jesus. I don't know what that looks like. Repent, to receive, to turn from. Maybe those, all those other things that you think you need to do are actually irrelevant and silly. And the one thing you need to do is receive the one who is sent. Here's a second thing, a word of counsel. See all the other things you need to do as downstream from that. See all the things that you might do in the next day or two or in this season as downstream from that. Right? I'll give you the most absurd one. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Right? I, I don't know if anyone actually does that, um, but, but think for just a moment, if you were like, if someone ever were to ask, this is, this is the kind of thing, if someone asked, why? Like, what is Christmas to you? And, and instead of saying, he who likewise suffered, and, right, and you said, man, it's, it's about roasting chestnuts on a good fire. Right? Like, can, you, can you see someone like, okay. So is it a chestnut festival? Like, right? Now, on the other hand, begin to contemplate, what would it look like to see roasting chestnuts on an open fire as downstream from 
The Savior who has come to be born so that we would relate to him and know him. This might just be kind of an intellectual trick in your head. I hope it's not. But begin to think of the things that you do to celebrate and commemorate Christmas as downstream from what Christ has done. Now, again, I, I, I use the most absurd because it would be silly, right? If anyone was like, uh, this holiday for the history of the last 2,000 years, it's about roasting chestnut. And downstream from that is Christians commemorating Jesus' birth, right? Because that sounds silly. No one would think that's a wise thing, but, but we do it all the time, don't we? <laughs> don't, we, don't we put things in front of what we actually commemorate? So join me in reflecting upon what it would look like to whatever it is that you do, right? Whatever you open presents tonight or tomorrow, or you don't do any of those things because that's pagan and silly. Good for you, right? You have you, trees and stars and driving around to watch Christmas lights. I don't, whatever it is that you do, just begin, what would, ask, ask yourself this, what would it look like to see that downstream from rather than upstream from the king who's come to suffer, the leader who's come to suffer, and the brother who's come to suffer? Lastly, as we reflect upon this king, this leader, and this brother who comes to take our place, who comes to relate to and to completely identify with you and me, born people, weak people, as we reflect upon this, this morning, the third thing we do is we are invited to a table. He is a brother who is not ashamed of us. He is a brother who is proud of us. Jesus identifies with us in the extreme. He identifies with us in the most extreme. If you cut Jesus, he bled. He partook in the same suffering, despair, hopelessness that you and I have experienced. He has a concern for you and I to draw us into a familial relationship. And all of these things invite us now to the table. In just a moment, we'll reflect upon all that we celebrate in communion that Jesus Christ has taken on flesh and we celebrate a mystery that the God of the universe would meet, I mean, just think, just, just think about this for a minute. The God of the universe would meet with you and me in a broken piece of bread and a sip of juice. That's how low this God is willing to go to welcome you and me. All you need to receive him is hunger. All you need to receive him is thirst. Do you long for things to be better? Maybe I would say it this way. Jesus knows what you're going through, and in a way that no one else can, he can relate to you. I mean, isn't that what we want? Right? <laughs> like, isn't that what we, like, isn't that the most lonely and terrible feeling? Like, no one knows how I feel, right? Even that's, Usually not true. You're usually experiencing exactly what someone else has. But you can't see that in the moment. In the moment, you're like, no one knows what it's like to be me. Jesus knows what you're going through. And that is what brings us to the table. He is not up there or out there. Jesus comes and Christmas reminds us that we can ask Jesus for help. Christmas reminds us that he has taken on suffering to invite you into his family. In a moment here, we're going to remember his death, the culmination of his mortality, the culmination of him taking on flesh. In perfection, he came to do, in this sense, what the divine and the eternal could not, to relate to the mortal and the frail. And here's the mystery. This table is for sons and daughters of God. This table is for the one that is welcomed by our older brother who pursued us into the far country and scooped us out of the muck to carry us back to a banquet with the Father. In just a moment, as we prepare to celebrate, you're going to make your way to the back of the room where there will be two tables where someone will declare to you a mystery, a mystery that will seem as absurd as the God of the universe being wrapped in swaddling clothes and put into a feeding trough. Someone will declare to you that the body of Christ was sufficiently broken to make atonement for your sin and mine. That the blood of Christ was sufficient to be poured out for your sin and mine. It's for repenting and think of it this way, it's for Christians. 
If you're not a Christian in the room, then abstain. Uh, but, but instead, join me. Instead of participating in this, which would be fairly just unsatisfying and kind of a silly snack, join me in receiving. Receive Jesus. Welcome him. Welcome him as the ruler who's come to take over. As the leader who's come to carry us through and the brother who's come to be proud of us. Because his body is the true satisfying bread. And his blood is the true and satisfying drink. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you are good to us and kind to us. As evidenced in this season, uh, we are not alone. And so would you first and foremost comfort those in the room who feel alone. Would you in some powerful way meet with us even now with assurance and edifying and uplifting words to us? Uh, Would you press into our hearts the, the powerful truth that you are a God who delights in us, who adopts us? You don't merely want subjects in love. You have drawn us to be sons and daughters. Now, for those of us in this room, maybe that that's, uh, seems like a mystery too great or a, a farcity that's beyond our imagination. Would, even now, would you begin to help us to consider the possibility that what we commemorate is a deep satisfaction of our longing, a deep comfort that we are, in fact, not alone, that anyone who is born can look to Jesus and find help. So, Father, we confess we have loved and pursued lesser things, and we are now helpless. Maybe some of us feel this more than others, but even now, would you begin to, as only you can, by the power of your Spirit, grant help, demonstrate your help to us this morning by meeting with us at a table where you provide all that is needed to satisfy our hunger and thirst. Help us to prepare our hearts as we meet you at this table to be satisfied. Thank you that you are the one, the king who has come to love and care for his subjects as family. You are the one who has authored and perfected our redemptive work to save us, to deliver us out of our own sorrow and despair. And you are the brother who has come to be proud of us, to cast out all the shame that we would carry. Thank you that all of this is visible for us at the table. In Jesus' name. We ask and receive these things. Amen.